Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of self-harm and suicidal ideation that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Sixteen-year-old Jennifer Pan stood center stage, trying not to think about the sea of faces in the audience, scrutinizing her every move. With each strike of her mallet, the rich timbre of the xylophone reverberated throughout the auditorium. It felt surreal. She could hardly believe she was performing in Salzburg, the city of Mozart's birth. She worked to steady her breathing as her solo approached its climax but the old concert hall wasn't just filled with rich history and culture. It was also filled with smoke, as dozens of patrons puffed on cigarettes and pipes. The tobacco drifted into Jennifer's lungs and she felt her airway start to constrict, but she refused to stop playing. She wouldn't let asthma ruin her moment. With the final beat of her mallet, Jennifer stole the show. When the curtain finally fell, she rushed outside. Her vision blurred as she pushed her way into the streets, but it was already too late. The fresh air couldn't calm her frayed nerves. She was panicking. She was going to die in Salzburg. Then, like a knight in shining armor, her fellow bandmate, 17-year-old Daniel Wong, sprinted to Jennifer's aid. He guided her head onto his lap and reassured her that everything would be okay. She just needed to relax. Slowly but surely, the panic subsided. As she regained control of her breath, Jennifer gazed into her hero's eyes. In that instant, she knew. This was a man she would do anything for. I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. This week, we'll explore the relationship between Jennifer Pan and her hyper-controlling parents, Han and Bic. We'll also see how her demanding upbringing set Jennifer up for disappointment and the forbidden romance that tore the Pan family apart. Next week, we'll detail the horrific crime that changed Jennifer's life forever. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. 
With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Even before her birth in Markham, Ontario, Jennifer Pan's life was not her own. As the eldest child of two Chinese-Vietnamese immigrants, she carried the heavy burden of her parents' hopes and dreams. She was expected to bridge the gap between two opposing cultures and elevate the Pan family to greatness. While her mother, Bic Ha Luang, was warm and compassionate, her father, Hui Han Pan, epitomized the qualities of a demanding tiger parent, a term coined by Yale Law School professor Amy Chua to describe her own approach to raising children. Like Professor Chua, Han demanded perfection through tough love and psychological control. He rarely showed emotion or praised Jennifer's accomplishments. Perhaps Han's tough love approach stemmed from his own upbringing. Born and raised amidst the turmoil of the Vietnam War, he came face to face with the grim realities of death and devastation. Before I continue with Han's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. According to psychologist Betty Kirshner, the adverse effects of such trauma can be passed down from parent to child. While some parents feel the need to remain resilient when dealing with their emotional distress, the effect of shutting down can ultimately lead parents to become less responsive to the emotional needs of their children. Despite the mental and emotional anguish of growing up in a war-torn country, Anne managed to earn a college degree in tool and dye and diesel mechanics. But after the fall of Saigon in 1975, he realized that achieving a life of prosperity in Vietnam would be impossible for him. So in 1979, when he was only 26 years old, Han boarded a boat for a chance at something more. After an arduous journey across the seas, he arrived on the Canadian shores as a political refugee. He was one of the few passengers to make it out alive Many of the other asylum seekers died en route from disease, violent storms, or pirate attacks. Once again, when faced with death, Han grew even more resolved to live. After settling in a suburb of Toronto, he met Bic, another Vietnamese refugee. The two quickly fell in love, got married, and started a family of their own. Their first child, Jennifer, was born in 1986, her brother Felix was born three years later. Han and Bic supported their children by working at the Magna International Auto Factory. While their wages were meager, they knew the importance of investing in their future. 
Japan, in particular, believed that true success couldn't be attained in a single lifetime. While he could only amount to being a tool and die maker, he expected his son to make a name for himself in the field of mechanical engineering and for his daughter to become a doctor or a pharmacist. To him, these fields offer the greatest potential for success and prestige. Although Bick was more easygoing when it came to expectations for her children, she was also a dutiful wife who abided by her husband's wishes. So hoping to secure prosperity through the accomplishments of their children, Han and Bick meticulously planned for Jennifer and Felix's future success. All the kids had to do was follow their playbook. They had to be the best. Han and Bick pushed both of their children into highly competitive activities to help them stand out from the crowd. Out of the two siblings, Jennifer showed the most promise. She learned piano at age four and took figure skating lessons at age six with hopes of pursuing an Olympic gold. Of course, this was all decided without any of her input. Luckily, she was a natural on the keys and had a passion for the ice. She frequently placed among the top-level pianists and figure skaters in Toronto. Throughout her formative years, she collected a treasure trove of awards, ribbons, and medals. To maintain her daughter's perfection, Han put her on a regimented schedule. It started with early morning skate practice, followed by eight hours of class, then practice again, and finally private lessons. During her final years in elementary school, Jennifer often returned home late into the evening, only to start her homework around 10 p.m. She had no time to herself. To prevent her from getting distracted, Han also limited her social interactions. Jennifer wasn't allowed to wear makeup, attend school dances, or even think of dating. As a result, her social life was limited. When she was finally allowed to attend a sleepover, her parents made sure that the fun didn't disrupt her strict schedule. She arrived late and left early. The more she succeeded in her extracurriculars, the more responsibility her parents placed on her shoulders. Anne rarely acknowledged her successes and was quick to comment on every mistake. Playing the wrong key or making the wrong turn meant carrying the shame of failure. As a result, Jennifer felt chronically unloved and unworthy. Unlike her Western peers, she rarely heard the words, I love you from her parents. To cope with the unrelenting pressure and emotional solitude, she turned to self-harm at a young age. While it's unclear exactly when it all began, cutting most likely offered Jennifer a sense of control in a world where she had none. In 2011, Dr. Mia Medina published a qualitative study exploring the reasons why individuals self-harm. Dr. Medina examined a group of Turkish women who resort to cutting because of their oppressive upbringings, but her findings were universal. She argued that for some, self-harm was an attempt to have an impact on the relational world and reclaim personal agency. Unable to make her own decisions, Jennifer felt powerless against the mounting pressure of her father's expectations. In times of great emotional distress, pressing a sharp blade against her wrist offered her a semblance of comfort. While she wasn't allowed to choose her career path, her passions, or even her friends, 
Jennifer realized that she could choose to embrace the physical pain of such moments. It took her mind off the emotional agony that defined the rest of her existence. While Jennifer cut in secret, Han proudly displayed his daughter's many achievements in a glass cabinet. Despite being reticent to shower his children with praise, he was eager to show visitors the countless medals Jennifer had received. It was clear that her successes were his as well. Though she knew her strictly regimented life was unlike most other children her age, Jennifer desperately wanted to make her father proud. Like Han, she clung to the belief that all of her efforts would amount to something meaningful one day. She wanted to be successful at all costs, so she suppressed her negative emotions and played the part of a dutiful daughter. She did what her father demanded and went along with a rigorous schedule of extracurricular activities. She excelled in sport, music, and school too. Every year, Jennifer ranked among the top of her elementary school class. She often spent her breaks assisting administrators in the office or helping younger kids with their studies. She wasn't just a good student, she was kind and well-rounded too. Everyone knew she was destined for greatness. So when her eighth grade graduation approached in the year 2000, she had nothing but the highest expectations. Jennifer stood with bated breath as the students assembled around her. She couldn't wait to hear the principal say her name. She was eager to add to her father's collection of awards. Considering her exemplary grades, extracurriculars, and close-knit relationships with faculty, Jennifer was a shoe-in for valedictorian. There was simply no one else that could compare. But as student after student was recognized for their achievements and she was passed over, she grew anxious. Thoughts of inadequacy raced through her head. Were the late nights completing homework and preparing for exams not enough? Were her volunteer work and assistance in the school office all for nothing? Did they not care about her extracurriculars? When the valedictorian was finally announced, Jennifer's heart dropped. Another student had taken her place. Someone else had been better than her. To her dismay, her name was never called once. She received no recognition at all. Jennifer was crushed. Her father had insisted that striving for perfection ensured success. But now, she'd sacrificed years of her life to reach the top and had nothing to show for it. Jennifer suddenly felt that everything she had been told was based on a lie. Coming up, Jennifer forges a new kind of life. Hi, listeners. Searching for another heart-pounding true crime series to dive into? Look no further. Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from Parcast that uncovers the missing pieces to some of history's most gripping cases. Every Wednesday on Spotify, join hosts Carter and Wendy, plus an ensemble cast of voice actors, as they explore the days, months, and even years leading up to a killer being caught. Each fantastic episode of Solved Murders plays out like a classic murder mystery, where the final reveal is nearly as shocking as the murder itself. 
Some of my favorite recent episodes include the unthinkable stabbing of an Oscar-nominated actor, the complicated private lives and deaths of a family of churchgoers, and the frantic search for a missing teenage heiress. Not every story has a happy ending, but at least they have an ending. Follow Solved Murders True Crime Mysteries free and exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. To please her overbearing parents, Jennifer Pan followed their rules till the letter as a child. She woke up before the sun rose to take figure skating lessons. She stayed up late practicing piano and studying for exams. But when she wasn't recognized as valedictorian of her eighth grade class in 2000, she started to question whether there was a point to all of her hard work. When she started ninth grade, 14-year-old Jennifer turned her back on school and focused on having fun and making friends instead. Rather than spending her breaks in the administrative office, she loitered in the band room or in the school hallways with her new best friends, Topaz Giu and Adrian Timkevich. Thanks to her school's progressive approach to academics, Jennifer found caring less about her grades easy. Students were given autonomy to decide the rigors of their coursework. They were free to arrange their schedule however they wished. They simply had to earn the required credits to graduate. For someone like Jennifer, whose life had been precisely regimented since birth, the newfound freedom made it difficult to keep up with her schoolwork. While she had previously scored A's on most of her elementary school exams, she soon realized that without sheer determination, she was merely an average student. Her grades slipped into the C's, which to her overbearing father, Han, might as well have been F's. When she received her first mid-year report card, Jennifer knew her father would be livid. To escape his wrath, she doctored her grades. Using some whiteout and a photocopier, Jennifer turned herself back into an A student. At the time, she reasoned that since it was only her first year in secondary school, she could turn her grades around by the time it mattered to colleges. Besides, other students took home C's all the time. Even still, her heart raced as her father reviewed her report card. To her relief, Han bought the forgery. Comforted by her high marks, he even suggested that she redirect some of her energy back to ice skating. Jennifer happily agreed. When school ended at 3 o'clock p.m., Han picked her up and shuttled her right to piano and skating lessons. He also maintained control over how Jennifer spent her free time. When she approached her father about joining her high school's track team, he dismissed the idea. She simply didn't have the time. Piano and ice skating were too important. Feeling confident that Jennifer was on track towards success, however, 
Han turned his focus on his son Felix, who seemed to be having a more difficult time in school. With her father's attention averted, Jennifer experienced things she had once thought impossible. In 2003, the 16-year-old fell for the love of her life in Salzburg, Austria. While traveling with the school band, she performed a xylophone solo in a smoke-filled music hall. Afterwards, she succumbed to a coughing fit that forced her onto the streets. Gasping for air, Jennifer thought she was going to die then and there. Fortunately, another student, 17-year-old Daniel Wong, came to her rescue. The spiky-haired, half-Chinese, half-Filipino boy placed her head on his lap and calmly helped her control her breathing. Eventually, her panic subsided and she regained her breath. With her head still resting on his lap, Jennifer stared up at her hero with instant devotion. This was the big love she had been waiting all her life for. While the two had crossed paths before in band, she had never really noticed Daniel before. But now she saw him for the man he really was, someone who cared enough to save her life. For that, she would love him at all costs. While Daniel was a well-liked and talented musician, he was hardly the type of boy Han would ever approve of. He wasn't well-mannered or studious and prioritized fun over academics. He even smoked pot. None of that mattered to starry-eyed Jennifer. With Daniel, she didn't have to be perfect. She could just be herself. As their friendship evolved into a relationship, the two became inseparable, always talking or texting on the phone. After some time, they began to have sex. Worried that her father would oppose their relationship, Jennifer and Daniel kept their love a secret. They didn't see each other outside of class. Unfortunately, during Daniel's senior year, his grades were so dismal that his parents forced him to transfer to another school. Desperate for his love and affection, Jennifer refused to let distance get in the way. Daniel was the only one in her life who understood her, who didn't make her feel unloved and unworthy. She started skipping school to visit him across town. At the time, she figured she wouldn't have to face the consequences of her actions anytime soon. By her junior year of high school, she had doctored her report card repeatedly. It helped her hide her subpar grades from her parents, but didn't do much to ease her crushing anxiety. Meanwhile, 18-year-old Daniel was also backsliding. Without his girlfriend's constant supervision at his new school, he began selling weed at a local pool hall and bowling alley. At first, it was easy money, but the consequences quickly caught up to him. One night, local police picked him up with a pound of weed and arrested him for intent to traffic. He pleaded guilty and only avoided jail time by ratting out his source. Worried for his future, Jennifer pleaded with Daniel to turn his life around. Thanks to her influence, he went on to attend York University for music and landed a managerial position at a restaurant. Pleased with his transformation, Jennifer did everything she could to spend more time with him. Knowing that Han wouldn't let her miss out on piano lessons or skating practice for social gatherings, 
she convinced her father to let her work part-time as a restaurant server. While the job was legitimate, she often lied about her hours in order to see Daniel at night. Han only agreed to the arrangement if Jennifer maintained her straight A's and continued to excel in figure skating. She happily accepted the compromise. After all, she was forging her grades anyway. Unfortunately, she couldn't fake everything. While preparing for the Canadian National Figure Skating Championships, Jennifer tragically tore her ACL. In an instant, her skating career was over. Jennifer was happy to be free of the demanding practices and was left with even more time to see Daniel. But Han was crushed. His dream of an Olympic gold vanished and a crucial part of his meticulous roadmap to success was suddenly crossed off. Even so, Han felt confident that his family was on the right track. By 2004, he and his wife, Bick, purchased a new home in a more expensive area of Ontario. After decades of funneling all of their savings into their kids, they finally bought something for themselves. Han started driving a Mercedes-Benz while Bick drove a Lexus. To the outside world, the Pan family was moving up. In addition to purchasing a home in an affluent neighborhood, they had raised good kids with bright futures ahead of them. They were shining examples of the immigrant dream, but reality was about to come crashing down. One afternoon, Bick pulled her new Lexus into the busy Pacific Mall parking lot to pick Jennifer up from her shift at the restaurant. As cars zipped in and out of the parking spots beside her, she double-checked the clock. Jennifer should have been done by now. As Bick scanned the parking lot for her daughter, her eyes fell upon another vehicle nearby. To her horror, she spotted Jennifer kissing the man inside, then climbing out. Bick felt sick. She couldn't believe her eyes. When Jennifer opened the door to her mother's car, Bick snapped. For 18 years, Jennifer had been perfect. She was the golden child who had followed all the rules. Now, she had crossed a line. Bick immediately assumed the worst. Based on a single kiss, she worried that her daughter was in a serious sexual relationship and worried that Jennifer was ruining her life. She claimed she had seen it happen before. Jennifer tried her best to explain. Daniel wasn't a bad guy, he was her one true love. He had even saved her life years earlier while in Salzburg. Despite her pleas, Han and Bick forbade their daughter from ever dating him. Jennifer was heartbroken. Sadly, things would only get worse. While Jennifer had secured an audition at Canada's prestigious Queen's University for piano, Han made it clear that she would never attend. Even though she preferred a career in music, Han was adamant that his daughter become a pharmacist. Then, halfway through her senior year, Jennifer discovered that she was failing calculus. Because of the missing credit, she wouldn't be able to graduate high school. Instead of owning up to her mistakes and making up the credit, Jennifer proceeded to make what she says was the most wrong decision of her life. Just as she had done to her report cards, 
she forged an acceptance letter to Ryerson University. The move represented a major escalation in Jennifer's lies, but by then she was well-practiced at deception. According to a study published in Nature Neuroscience, the brain's response to dishonesty diminishes with successive lies. Using brain scans, researchers from the University College of London captured the way the brain's amygdala activated when individuals lied. The more a participant lied, the less activity there was in their amygdala. Their research suggests that the more a person lies, the easier it becomes. The study also found that the amygdala became even less active, mostly when people lied to benefit themselves. In other words, self-interest seemed to fuel dishonesty. In order to preserve her relationship and self-image, Jennifer went from fibbing about her grades to fabricating a false future. To ensure that neither Han nor Bick would ask any questions about tuition, she forged additional documents that claimed she'd received a $3,000 scholarship. To save face, Jennifer was going to college, no matter what it took. Up next, Jennifer's secrets unravel. Now, back to the story. After failing calculus her senior year, 18-year-old Jennifer Pan was unable to graduate high school in 2004. Instead of owning up to her mistakes and retaking the course, Jennifer forged a phony college acceptance letter, as well as a $3,000 scholarship award from Ryerson University in Toronto. While Ryerson wasn't at the top of Han's list of undergraduate universities, Jennifer assured her parents that the school was just a stepping stone towards becoming a pharmacist. After two years of commuting at Ryerson, she promised to apply to the University of Toronto's more prestigious pharmacology school. Pleased with this arrangement, Han and Bick showered her with graduation gifts. As the fall semester began at Ryerson, Jennifer left home each weekday and pretended to attend classes. In reality, she found a spot in the Toronto Public Library and thumbed through the pages of pharmacology textbooks, taking detailed notes. When she returned home each night, she regaled her family with stories about all the interesting topics she'd supposedly learned about. To keep her story straight, she also lied to all of her friends, except for Daniel. Not only did she complain to her coworkers about the immense workload, she often talked about how she needed to maintain a good GPA to keep her scholarship. In reality, without a high school diploma, she knew her options were limited, yet she did nothing to make up the missing credit. With no plan for her future, she grew more and more anxious. Jennifer's mother, Bick, noticed the change in her behavior. When she pressed her daughter for answers, Jennifer took things one step further. While Ryerson was less than 20 miles from the Pan family home, Jennifer complained about the stress of commuting to and from school. Wanting the best for their daughter, Han and Bick agreed to let her stay at her best friend Topaz's downtown apartment from Monday through Wednesday. But instead of living with Topaz, Jennifer found shelter with her boyfriend Daniel Wong and his parents about 25 miles away from the university. Since her parents had already forbidden Jennifer from dating Daniel, she had to work overtime to sustain yet another lie. To keep up the illusion that she was sleeping at Topaz's, Jennifer called her parents every morning and night. 
If Han or Beck ever called Topaz to check up on their daughter, Topaz started a three-way call to make it seem that she was in the same room as Jennifer. To Jennifer, it was a complex but flawless plan. She could finally be with the love of her life without upsetting her parents. Life with Daniel's family was surprisingly idyllic. While Han and Bick had always disapproved of their relationship, Daniel's parents thought the world of Jennifer. Of course, like Han and Bick, they didn't know the whole truth. While Jennifer carried the weight of her lies on her shoulders, for two long, beautiful years, she was able to live with the love of her life in peace. But when her supposed two years at Ryerson came to an end, things started to unravel. In 2006, Han pressed Jennifer to make good on her promise of transferring schools. As always, instead of owning up to the truth, the 20-year-old lied. She told her parents that she had been admitted into the University of Toronto's pharmacology program. Thanks to her ever-improving photoshopping skills, Jennifer continued to bring home top marks. But the constant dishonesty took a toll on her. Since she had never completed her calculus credit, she remained in the same limbo as before. She had neither a college degree nor a high school diploma. Feeling that her lies had grown out of control, she once again returned to self-harming. Even as her mental state deteriorated, Jennifer refused to admit the truth. She kept up the elaborate charade until her supposed graduation in 2008. When the big day came, she told her parents she had only received one ticket to the proceedings because of a large class size. Instead of choosing between her parents, she opted to give her ticket away. To prove that she had graduated, she simply gave her parents a falsified degree she had purchased online. However, after earning her fake degree, Jennifer had no reason to live away from home and was back under Han's thumb full time. Desperate to break free, she sent out a phony resume hoping to snag a job on falsified credentials. Rather than wait for an offer, she told her parents that she'd gotten a lucrative volunteer position at the Toronto Hospital for Sick Children, working in their laboratory. As the hospital was located downtown, Jennifer was once again allowed to stay with Topaz during the days and nights she worked. Of course, it was all another ruse to return to Daniel's arms. Unfortunately for her, Jennifer couldn't think of everything. As time went on, Han started to doubt her story. The only time he'd ever caught his daughter lying was when he discovered her relationship with Daniel. But he wasn't a trusting man and always suspected something fishy was going on. Although Jennifer had handed him a college degree, he'd never actually seen her graduate. Anytime he asked to see her school loans or tuition, she brushed him aside. Han knew hospitals required their volunteers to wear uniforms or, at the very least, carry some form of identification card. When he watched Jennifer prepare for her supposed work, she had neither. Determined to know the truth, he offered to drive her all the way to the Toronto hospital one morning. Jennifer adamantly opposed the idea. She didn't need her father to take her to work. She was 22 years old. But Han insisted. He even invited Bick along for the ride. When the trio approached the hospital entrance, Han could sense something was off about Jennifer. 
He casually asked Bic to follow her inside to see their daughter's place of work. Afraid she would be discovered, Jennifer quickly jumped out of the car, rushed into the hospital's emergency room, and took cover. Bic never managed to find her daughter. The following day, Topaz awoke to an early morning call. Bic demanded to speak with Jennifer. Still half asleep, Topaz forgot to cover for her friend. She let it slip that Jennifer wasn't staying at her place. When Han and Bic finally got a hold of Jennifer, they demanded to know the truth. Once again cornered, Jennifer confessed that the job had been a ruse. Instead of volunteering to further her career, she was running off to be with her boyfriend. To their horror, Jennifer's parents learned she had never broken ties with Daniel. In fact, she had been living with him for years. Jennifer also admitted that she had never attended classes at the University of Toronto. To minimize their anger, she slipped in another lie, explaining that she had taken correspondence classes instead. She completely avoided mentioning that she had never graduated from high school and had never completed two years at Ryerson University. Feeling betrayed and disrespected, Han was prepared to disown his daughter right then and there. After consulting with his wife, he gave Jennifer an ultimatum instead. Stay home and go to school, or go with Danny Wong and never come back. Forced to pick between her family and the love of her life, Jennifer felt she had no choice. She was raised to believe that family should always come first. While she had no intention of breaking up with Daniel, she needed to save face and prove to her parents that she was still a good daughter. So she promised to break things off. Hoping to get her back on track, Han and Bic forced Jennifer under house arrest. All forms of communication were taken away from her and she wasn't allowed out of the house at all. Han wanted Jennifer to pour all of her focus into her education. She begrudgingly obliged. After a few weeks, Han's anger subsided. While he still demanded that Jennifer pursue a career in medicine, he was open to her advancing her prospects in other areas. Well aware of her passion for music, Han pushed Jennifer to get her teaching diploma for piano. In order to receive accreditation, she needed to prepare for a comprehensive exam covering music history and theory. She also needed to pass a series of piano performances. As such, Jennifer was permitted to use the family car to resume her private piano lessons. The mileage was always checked to ensure she only went where she was supposed to. In addition to her classes, she was allowed to apply for jobs in the medical field as well as teach amateur piano lessons to young students. Jennifer exploited this opportunity to regain access to her cell phone and computer. In between checking for jobs, she made sure to keep in contact with Daniel. But for his part, Daniel was close to fed up. He'd grown accustomed to living with Jennifer and missed her desperately. Late one night, he begged her to sneak out of the house and meet him. Jennifer couldn't refuse her soulmate. After stuffing her bed to look like she was fast asleep, she got a ride from a friend to spend the night with him. Early the next morning, 
Vic stumbled into her room to discover that her daughter was gone. The entire Pan family was irate. Once again, Jennifer was forced back into solitary confinement. To gain back her freedom, Jennifer crafted another lie. She told her family that she had gotten a job at a Walmart pharmacy, packaging and labeling medication. Han was instantly suspicious. Just like before, Jennifer had no uniform nor identification card. He insisted on driving her to work, but this time, Jennifer was prepared. She knew how to get in through the Walmart employee entrance. Two weeks after she started her supposed job, however, Han asked to see her payslips. She promptly offered up forged documents, but when he also asked to see her bank statements, Jennifer was forced into another corner. Jennifer confessed to Han that the Walmart position was all a ploy to see Daniel. She also let slip that she had never graduated from the University of Toronto. It was all too much for Han. He yelled in Jennifer's face, calling her a liar over and over again. Angrier than ever before, Han lashed out at any target he could find and quickly decided that Daniel Wong had corrupted his daughter. In his mind, Daniel was to blame for everything that Jennifer had done wrong. In April of 2009, he forced Jennifer to send Daniel an email, ending their relationship for good. Jennifer was later able to smooth things over with Daniel in secret, but the two still had to be careful about seeing each other in person. Now 23 years old, she was locked in her home again, only allowed to leave with her parents' approval. All of her communication was heavily monitored and her curfew was promptly set at 9 p.m. Her life was now even more restrictive than it had been during her formative years. Daniel encouraged Jennifer to cut ties with her family and come to live with him again, but she refused. She still felt the inexplicable need to remain with her family. Perhaps she wanted to heal what she had broken. Or perhaps she showed signs of what psychologist and author Brad Sachs calls a reluctant young adult. Dr. Sachs suggests that one of the reasons why young people find it difficult to leave their childhood home is because their parents have been overly involved in their lives from the beginning. While parents act with the best of intentions, prolonged micromanagement can ultimately lead to developmental paralysis. After 23 years of being controlled by Han and Bick, it's possible that Jennifer was too dependent on her parents to leave. Unprepared to face the world on her own, Jennifer simply couldn't deal with total estrangement. Even so, she constantly complained to others about her terrible living conditions. She felt like she was a prisoner whose only crime was loving a man that her parents disapproved of. Daniel was at his wit's end and decided he had enough of the drama. When Jennifer said she couldn't move in with him, he broke up with her for good. Jennifer stared at the bottle of Tylenol in her hand. Without Daniel, she was a complete nobody. While she contemplated downing the entire thing, she only managed to swallow three pills before washing it down with some vodka. Despite wanting her pain to end, she had too much to live for. 
She was determined to win Daniel back. Their love was worth it. Daniel, unfortunately, couldn't see that. Realizing he would never receive Han's seal of approval, he had moved on with his life. He even started dating another woman, 27-year-old Katrina Villanueva. While Jennifer pretended to be happy for him, her life was a complete mess. She felt hopeless without Daniel and clung to the hope that they would one day be reunited. To pass the time under house arrest, she sought attention and validation from other men, including an elementary school friend named Andrew Montemayor. In the spring of 2010, Jennifer and Andrew reconnected through social media. Over time, the two grew closer and Jennifer shared details about her strict upbringing. She vented to Andrew about her cruel and overbearing parents who treated her like a child. She wanted to be free of them. Andrew offered his sympathies. He knew what it was like to deal with a difficult family. According to Jennifer, Andrew claimed that things got so bad in the Montemayor household that he had almost killed his father. A light bulb suddenly switched on in Jennifer's mind. She knew how she would get her life back on track. Her parents had to die. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Jennifer Pan. We'll detail Jennifer's plot to kill her parents as well as the shocking investigation that brought the truth to light. For more information on Jennifer Pan, amongst the many sources we used, we found A Daughter's Deadly Deception by Jeremy Grimaldi extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Jane O, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Cheyenne Lopez, and research by Chelsea Wood and Mickey Taylor. I'm Lainey Hobbs. <laughs>